and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm one of your two hosts, Olga Ulliker, and I am speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm Alyssa Jobson, your other host, also speaking from Brussels. Today, as uh, we embark upon a third year of uh, full-scale war between Russia and Ukraine that followed Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24th of 2022, we are taking a look at where things stand for Kiev and for its Western backers. And based on that, um, we're going to try to see if we have any thoughts about where things might be headed in the year ahead. We can get our land back, and Putin can lose. And this has already happened more than once on the battlefield. Russia is sending wave after wave of conscript forces to attack Ukrainian positions. And because Congress has yet to pass the supplemental bill, we've not been able to provide Ukraine with the artillery shells that they desperately need to disrupt these Russian assaults. So two years uh, have passed since Russia undertook uh, its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which means that 10 years have passed since war first began in 2014. And looking at uh, the situation, things do not look terrific for Kiev. Ukraine's counteroffensive uh, that began over the summer and continued into the fall has disappointed. Uh, It resulted in very little in the way of battlefield gains for the Ukrainians. And now, as a result of domestic political fights and policy decisions in Western capitals, Kiev is also facing growing shortages of weapons. Uh, In addition to that, it is running short of personnel. Earlier this month, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky dismissed his army chief, Valery Zaluzhny, after the two clashed publicly over the trajectory of the war. On February 17th, uh, Russian forces captured the town of Avdiivka, their most significant territorial gain since they took Bakhmut in May of last year. Ukrainian officials are now grappling with accusations that a disorderly withdrawal from Avdiivka may have cost lives and perhaps resulted in POWs, although the details remain unclear from where we sit. Dear friends, unfortunately, keeping Ukraine in the artificial deficit of weapons, particularly in deficit of Artillery and long-range capabilities allows Putin to adapt to the current intensity of the war. Speaking at last weekend's Munich Security Conference, uh, Zelensky downplayed the loss of Ivydivka. He also made clear that insufficient uh, weapons supplies from the West and the resultant shortages of artillery and longer-range capabilities are what made Russia's recent advances possible. Statements from the Biden administration, uh, intended to shame the U.S. Congress to action, affirmed the assessment that the problem is a lack of weapon supplies. Exacerbating this is that Moscow has significantly ramped up its arms production since the beginning of the war, and Kiev's Western partners are struggling to keep up their support. 
what's going on in the United States, uh, what the Biden administration and Zelensky are talking about, is that a $60 billion aid package for Ukraine has been stuck in Congress for months and shows uh, limited prospects of moving forward. While the possibility of a second Donald Trump presidency creates even more questions about the future of Washington's support for Ukraine. In Europe, where leaders consistently say that Ukraine's war is crucial to their own security, there is less worry that uh, leaders are planning to reverse policy course. But if supporting Ukraine would mean that uh, they have to make up for the aid that would stop if the U.S. turned off the taps, Europe would have to double what it is now sending. Moreover, money doesn't translate immediately into weapons, and more arms will not solve Ukraine's personnel problems. To talk about all of this, we're pleased to welcome Alyssa de Carbonell, who is Crisis Group's Deputy Programme Director for Europe and Central Asia, and also our senior Ukraine analyst, Simon Schlegel. Both of them are repeat guests, so keen listeners might recognise them from episodes last year. Elissa and Simon, welcome back to War and Peace. Thank you for having us. Hi, it's great to be back. So, Simon, I want to start with you. Uh, the fall of Odievka looks like a pretty significant territorial loss. Is it? Um, and how are uh, how are Ukrainians responding to the situation? Yes, the fall of Avdiivka is indeed a significant loss. It's been a stronghold for eight years. Ukrainian troops have fortified their positions there. It's the closest position the Ukrainians had to the biggest city, Donetsk, that the, the Russians occupy in Ukraine. So uh, losing this and losing it in this uh, manner is particularly painful for the Ukrainians. They now have to redraw to unfortified positions and uh, dig in as quickly as possible there. Uh, Avdiivka is also uh, important because it's close to the Donetsk cities that the Ukrainians still hold, such as Slavyansk, Kramatorsk and Pokrovsk. This will be the next then big targets for the Russians. It's still a long way to those, but the logistics around the Eastern Front have become much more complicated. And the fall of Avdiivka has also been much swifter than the fall of Bakhmut a year ago, which looked similar in terms of dynamics. It also was surrounded on three sides from Russians from the east. And the Ukrainians could hold out there much longer. And their main goal was actually not so much to hold the city as to inflict very high uh, attrition, attritional losses on, on the Russians. In Avdiivka, they only had since October in this really intense fight, and they, of course, have themselves suffered significant losses in terms of fighters and in terms of uh, arms and ammunition. And this time, it just wasn't enough. And when once the Russians started to enter the built-up area of Avdiivka about two weeks ago, the whole process uh, went very, very quickly, and the situation for the remaining defenders deteriorated very quickly. And then overnight last Saturday, the army command decided to pull out in a manner that was, as you said, more chaotic than is a good look. And what does this mean for Ukraine and its and 
its ability to continue and, and make progress in the war? And as, as Ollie said, how, how has it been perceived in the country? One way of the Ukrainians to narrate this loss in public is to downplay it as they've always done and as the Russians do as well when they lose a place. It's one, one way of doing this is saying that this had to come at some point. It was expected. There was no way the Ukrainians could hold on to Avdiivka forever. Another way is saying that it's completely destroyed. There are no civilians living there. So the Russians taken over a ruin, basically. And another way is to say that we've done this to make the Russians pay dearly. The Russians did pay a lot in life and and arms for this city that is indeed completely ruined. That's the ways it's being communicated at the moment. It's also, as Olya has mentioned, just uh, 10 days into the tenure of General Oleksandr Sirsky, who is the new head command of the Ukrainian army. And he had his reputation of sacrificing too many soldiers in Bakhmut last year. So for him, this was also probably a way to show that he's much more serious now about preserving the lives of soldiers, which Ukraine does have a lot less and has a lot harder time now to mobilize and train than it did a year ago. So overall, it's it's a painful loss. But um, as a, a country at war often does when it's on its back foot, it's also a lot of downplaying and contextualizing. So Zelensky has said that the reason that Avdiivka was lost um, is that the Russians have ammunition advantages and Ukraine without Western support doesn't. So do you think we're going to keep seeing more Russian advances? I mean, they're pushing all along the line of contact. Are they going to break through in other places? Unfortunately, we have to expect that, yes. The Russians have now started attacking in the southern front as well, in a place called Robotine, one of the few places the Ukrainians were able to conquer during their ill-fated summer offensive. That place is also in a salient, in a, a place that is, lies quite deep within uh, other Russian lines, and it's quite easy for the Russians to attack from several sides there. Another place that we might see come under more pressure is Kupiansk in the northeast, a town that is logistically very important. It, it's in, in Kharkiv Oblast, so not in, in Donetsk and or Luhansk, so outside of the areas that the Russians claim they have annexed already. Uh, all, and, and that might actually escalate their, their demands once it comes to uh, negotiations. So all of these places are under a lot of pressure. The Ukrainians also maintain a bridgehead on the left bank of the Dnipro River in the southern Kherson Oblast, a place called Krinki which uh, they've taken great pride in uh, establishing and holding for many months uh, a bridgehead. There as well, uh, the news are coming in that this place is under a lot of pressure. That would be not a huge loss in terms of territory, but it, it's symbolically very important. So along this 1,000 kilometer long front line, there's a lot of pressure on the Ukrainians now. And um, unfortunately, especially in places that are so exposed as Robotina, we might see further losses over the coming weeks. You said that Ukraine is going to be falling into a defensive posture um, in order to regroup and, and fix, and it also needs to fix some of the mobilization challenges that it has, as well as allowing time for more weapons to enter its stockpiles. Um, defense is, in, is indeed less weapon intensive than offense, but can this work? And, and for how long, do you think? 
it's really hard to put a number on the timeline because we don't know exactly what is in the pipeline. So we don't know exactly what the Ukrainians will receive, how well they're going to be able to employ it, how quickly the Russians find where the best new assets stand and, and start destroying them. Uh, we don't know exactly how many soldiers are being trained at the moment and with what skills and what they can do. But the tendency goes towards Ukraine is going to increasingly struggle to find enough soldiers and train them in time uh, and, and combine whatever is in the pipeline still to a w in a way that they can keep the line. It's really hard to put a, a number to it, but uh, I think the tendency is towards more desperate calls from Ukrainians to Europeans, uh, probably mainly at this point, uh, for more weapons and more sophisticated weapons and especially ammunition, which Ukraine has only about half what it needs at the moment. So on that point, I want to turn to Alyssa. Um, the EU, unlike the United States, um, seems to be pretty much united behind support for Ukraine, but not 100% united. Hungary has probably been the most vocal outlier and as a result, uh, and a continuing obstacle to getting aid approved. The aid gets approved, but Hungary always slows it down. Do you think this is going to continue? Well, you see a certain amount of alarm at the moment, right, about the situation uh, in D.C., about the gridlock there, about the need to step up. We've seen some big announcements in the weeks, um, or actually months, since uh, U.S. aid has been held up. Um, that show not only that the rhetoric is becoming more alarmist among EU leaders, but that countries on a bilateral level are, are ready to, to give more. But just to come back to something that Simone was talking about, we are now in a situation in which Ukraine is lacking just artillery for a minimum level of defense. So before EU leaders met at their summit to agree the 50 billion um, aid package, which is financial aid, which is a lifeline for Ukraine in terms of economic budgetary support so that it can continue to plow all of its own uh, revenues into defense and more. Um, you did see a letter from uh, Ukraine's defense minister, Umerov, saying the situation is critical and saying they don't even have a minimum level of artillery fire. You have military um, analysts saying that now uh, the Russian fire or power on the front lines is as much as five times higher than what um, Ukraine has. So we are talking about issues in defense and the fall of Avdivka, the timing of that couldn't be worse in terms of maybe fueling this uh, gloomy mood. Um, and there I see a risk uh, that it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, to a certain extent, you need to believe in the ability for Ukraine to not only hold the line, but um, be able to continue to exert pressure on Russia, whether it's in the coming months or, you know, further down the line to continue to send weapons and arm. Um, and, and that's a conversation that I think in Washington is is, is very difficult. Um, but that's not con completely absent from um, the EU discussion and that we will see more with elections coming up, with EU parliamentary elections, with elections in various countries in Europe. So it's not absent. 
There's also a downturn in Europe at the moment. Uh, It's not the healthiest economic situation that we have been in for a long time. And so, you know, those are also going to put sort of policy pressures on leaders who want to continue to support Ukraine. What do you think the EU and its member states need to prioritise in terms of their support to Ukraine? What can they do? Well, uh, you know, there's uh, certain levels of support. One of them is the symbolic um, and the messaging. Um, I say symbolic because, you know, we've seen the agreement of the UK to uh, to sign a um, 10-year bilateral security agreement with Ukraine. Germany has done the same. France has done the same. These are signals of support for the long term. They're very important in terms of messaging towards both Ukraine, but also Russia. And they you know, are specific sort of concrete commitments towards what kind of future army the West would like to see Ukraine having and what kind of strategy they would like to uh, and relationship they would like to have with Kiev for the long term. But the most immediate thing, of course, is is for EU leaders to get their acts together. And, you know, if uh, the situation is as dire and critical as Ukraine is saying, and as Macron, Schultz and others are repeating um, in the last weeks, then you shouldn't see the kind of situation in which you have uh, an agreement over uh, the European Peace Facility, which is sort of the fund um, that the EU uses to to, to fund Ukraine, being um, a source or held up by squabbles over whether the money is spent in Europe or spent, you know, abroad to buy artillery shells. Whether who is... Uh, among the EU member states is having the greater share of the burden. Um, Criticisms that actually EU countries are using that to send old equipment to Ukraine and and, uh, revamp their own militaries. Um, So, you know, you do see some countries stepping up and and emptying their stockpiles. Um, But the, the fundamental issue not only in the EU, but also in the US, is defense production. Um, you, you, I mean, even before USAID was held up, they had to pull people out of retirement to start making some of the weapons that they had sent to Ukraine and keep things going. You don't just turn the tap on and start producing um, at the same level as before. I mean, Russia even is struggling on that front, but they are very different economy and a very different system. Um, Defense contractors need the kinds of signals and guarantees in order to commit. And then they have to deal with all sorts of issues to even get that production capacity going, um, you know, and, and at the moment with the way in which funding is being debated, um, it's, they're not getting those kinds of signals. So Alyssa, Tell me why you think, to years of watching uh, European defense industry and how it works, European industry and how it works, why is it so hard to to sign the long-term contracts that uh, industry wants to get the production moving? Why is that so difficult? Well, I mean, countries can act on a bilateral basis, right, to support Ukraine and to make certain commitments. But if we're talking about the the kind of clubbing together that you saw 
for the first time during the COVID pandemic of EU countries moving to use different kinds of innovation, um, procure, joint procurement, other other ways forward in order to move quickly. Um, and you imagine how difficult that was even during the pandemic for things like vaccines or masks or, or gear. Um, if you want to then translate and, and make those kinds of commitments um, in a defense industry, which is one of the most, I mean, you couldn't pick an industry that is more of a national something that that countries want to protect on a national level, something that is deeply um, integral to people's uh, or countries and leaders' feelings of security and and giving up that level of power or or buying weapons abroad rather than in the EU for matter of expediency is very, very, very difficult. But there are just also you know, issues of organization. I mean, part of this is how difficult it is to to ramp up defense production, even if they have the political signals, um, you know, there's a number of issues there, um, which we can talk about more. But the, the other part of it is is just organization. You know, there hasn't been that kind of involvement of the defense industry um, until relatively recently um, in, in, in some of the decisions. That's why you have pledges that, uh, you know, the EU has made but failed to follow up on. Um, so the first step would be to have more of a joined up uh, kind of conversation with industry. Commission President uh, von der Leyen has said that she's going to run again for the for the presidency. Uh, she's also suggested that maybe need to add a new commissioner to the to the whole roster of commissioners that we have at the in the EU, a defence commissioner. Do you think that could be helpful? Could it help with coordination? It should certainly help with coordination, and I think there's been a lot of support for that statement. I mean, um, it's not a coincidence that she's using this as part of her campaigning um, to remain in her post. Um, I think it's a popular decision, but uh, it would take a lot for that person to be vested with the kind of power that, say, the anti-monopoly commissioner or the energy commissioner, where EU states have already decided to give over a certain amount of their sovereignty to the EU on those issues, uh, for that person to have the same abilities to really move the dial. But certainly, um, it would be helpful in coordinating and and really, you know, putting some order into what needs to be done um, in the absence of NATO being able to do that in the same way. So let's talk about this a little bit. To what extent do you think the Europeans are really ready to hedge against the prospect of an unreliable United States, whether it's with Donald Trump at the helm or with uh, Joe Biden continuing in the presidency, but also continuing to be hamstrung by the Congress. Are the Europeans ready to think about ways forward or do you expect more foot dragging? And if you expect more foot dragging, I mean, is this going to undermine the war effort? Is, I mean, is, is this how you lose the war? 
So I don't think that they have been foot tracking. I think there has been, you know, EU support, uh, uh, EU member states support altogether outstrips what the U.S. has given. Um, I think there are some hard realities about what uh, today uh, the European Union and its member states are able to do um, compared to what the U.S. is able to do just in terms of military support. I think nobody has the ability uh, both to produce, to empty stockpiles, to 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 jump in with the kind of uh, military support also on the intelligence side and on the strategy side that, uh, that the U.S. is able to do. Um, so you have seen, um, you know, Germany doubling its commitment, Sweden making big announcements, um, a number of Scandinavian, other Scandinavian states, um, you know, uh, making big pledges. The, you know, the question is um, whether, you know, this is sustainable for the long term. It's, it's, it's really hard to say at this stage whether uh, countries will be able to step up further. I think they are moving in that direction. I don't know if it's with the level of urgency that is going to be needed to replace the United States. I think, you know, you had Schultz in D.C. saying the U.S. is indispensable. I think I don't know if that will be possible if, if USAID evaporates tomorrow. Simone, you're based in Kiev. How is this vacillation seen from Ukraine, not just from within the the government? Obviously, you know, Zelensky has called out the lack of ammunition as a as a reason for why Ukraine isn't making the the advances that it is, but how is it seen amongst Ukrainian people? Well it creates a very gloomy atmosphere. I would almost liken it to the atmosphere two years ago in January before the invasion happened when so much was unclear and some people were in outright denial better when other people were in panic you had all at the same time and and now again it's really hard for people to make sense of what that means for their own future yeah you know the uh, these very complicated even the language about what the US Congress and the US Senate does and what European aid means, how this translates into security in Kiev, for example, right? Uh, at the moment, we have a quite a good interception rate of air attacks, whether it's drones or missiles. The Ukrainians are quite good at shooting those down and some people do not bother to go underground anymore during air raids. But uh, people do realize that this might change soon again and because of this, everything is on hold, I think. that is you, you can feel that if you talk to people who have left Ukraine, it's still about 15% of Ukrainians are outside of the country and they are in this situation, of course, postponing the decision of coming back or not, especially coming back to areas they, that are closer to the front lines or close to the border with Russia, which remain very insecure. As we said before, the front line could change again. And, the same happens with investment. It's really hard to, to make a financial decision in this climate to say that, uh, for example, you want to buy a flat or land. The land market has been liberalized, but hardly anybody is trying to buy any land, although it's you know among the best and most fertile land in the world uh, because, of, uh, because it's so insecure. 
um, it's really hard to get a loan in this uh, climate, especially if you if you live close to the border to the front line. So everything feels on hold, and uh, Ukrainians often feel a bit betrayed by the West. I feel because uh, there were this. There wasn't much trust in the West, I think, when the, the invasion began, but then there was this huge wave of solidarity and of, of actual support. And whenever a new weapon system arrived, it was a matter of celebration in Ukraine. And then for a couple of weeks, that would dominate the news. And every uh, every time that weapon was, you know, when the HIMARS arrived or when the, uh, when the uh, Stinger arrived in the beginning of the war this was really celebrated as a as a token of western support and that is probably not going to happen anymore even if it's uh, even if it comes forward then it's going to be this incremental uh, aid in more uh, longer term ammunition and so forth so it's it's probably not going to be the same dynamic between the west and ukraine anymore it's going to be this much more nitty-gritty uh, negotiations about quantities and uh, many Ukrainians I feel are really struggling with making sense of all of this and making sense of what that means for their own personal futures. Yeah, I just wanted to go back to to a question that Olya said. I mean, I think part of the answer about how Europe will respond to the current situation in Ukraine is to say, how has the war changed? How has it changed Europe's view of Russia, uh, of the threat there? Um, I mean, for Ukraine, it's existential, but I think increasingly you see a consensus around uh, EU leaders that it's pretty nearly there for them as well. And now that differs, and there's always been very stark differences between, I don't know, Madrid and Tallinn on um, the threat posed by Russia. Uh, But I think now that leaders are considering, you know, faced with with the perspective of a Ukrainian defeat, however we want to define that, at least the lines falling, uh, Russia's ability to claim the victory, there's a little bit more consensus over what the risks might be. And, and Olya should say a few words because she is studying this for the last year, um, you know, how threat perceptions have evolved. I mean, from my perspective, I think there's a really interesting, perhaps disturbing disconnect between narratives and um, actions that the narratives from European countries are very on point, that this war is existential for Europe and for the future of Europe. And there is a logic to that that makes very good sense. But if you don't act that way, or if you can't, even if you want to, then you do need to be thinking about, if not this, then what? And the absence of thinking about what a plan B or a plan C might look like is almost as striking as some of the flailing, at least from my perspective. I don't know where this goes from here. Um, Maybe they get their act together. Maybe the Americans get their act together. But I I don't think this is the last round of it all. But uh, I think it's really interesting because I think part of the, the lack of an ability to think through the plan C, the plan B, is what contributed to the hype and the hope and the 
outsize expectations in the counteroffensive is because nobody wanted to think ahead to what people knew before the counteroffensive started was going to be a long war and all of the challenges that they were going to be facing today. Right. So where we are now is you can have a long war, but then you have to get your act together or you can have a really short, well, no longer really short, but much shorter war in which Ukraine surrenders, right? You don't get the one you want, which is a short war where Ukraine wins. That is not, you know, absent a miracle, that's not on the table. So these are your options. What are you going to do about them? Does Europe have any kind of answer to that? Are they even thinking about it? Don't think it's Europe alone. I think, you know, as we've been discussing, it has to be a joint strategy uh, among Ukraine's backers. Uh, you'd hope that uh, the majority of politicians in Washington who do believe this is a critical issue will be able to come forward with some aid. But certainly, you know, whatever strategy happens has to be in part Europe getting its act together and, and being able to, to invest in defense production and make the kinds of commitments that match its rhetoric, but also in Kyiv reforms of mobilization, less of this blame game for what went wrong in the counteroffensive and more of a, a discussion of what the actual strategy should be going forward to make things happen, to turn the tables so that what we are seeing at the moment is Russia having the upper hand. Does it continue to lead to a slow loss uh, for Ukraine. So, Simone, what what options does you, Ukraine see? Does it have a plan B, a plan C? Or, you know, is the thought of losing just not an option? I'm not sure it's a plan B or C, but it's a way of operating that Ukraine is actually quite used to. They came into this war clearly as the uh, militarily inferior party and they've fought a, a much superior enemy before and they were also in this situation that nobody really believed that they would hold out for long. So one thing is, is remembering that and, and gaining strength from that. Uh, another thing is playing on time. So uh, the Ukrainians have gotten really good in defending and really good in using Russia's advances and the shocks that this brings to convince Western partners to send more. Uh, every time the, um, you know, this famous Ukraine fatigue set in in the West, the Russians did something despicable and uh, then the next sort of layer of uh, um, heavy weapons was, was released. Um, so probably many people in, in Kiev are hoping for that effect again as more uh, towns fall to Russia and Russia does, does whatever Russia does in these towns. Uh, another thing is to shifting to asymmetrical warfare. The Ukrainians have been really good at taking out big assets from the Russians, planes and ships in a high pace throughout this uh, invasion. They've severely diminished the Black Sea fleet uh, to a point where the Russians cannot just uh, revamp it easily or quickly and their capacities in the Black Sea are, are um, severely diminished. They've done this uh, with drones and uh, very few rockets. Uh, many of the drones they built themselves based on jet ski engines and other improvised assets. So there's going to be a whole sort of domestic uh, grassroots industry that relies on developing an edge over the Russians that can last for a couple of weeks until the Russians catch up and make the most of that. So that is uh, another way how the Ukrainians can gain time and try to convince uh, the world and Europe, mainly, mainly that this is an existential war, not just for them. 
So I think on that note, uh, that's where we're going to have to leave it. Uh, Simon, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. For more from Alyssa and Simon, you can follow them on Twitter. They are at Adikar and at Simon underscore Schlegel underscore. Both of them have also participated in an online event we hosted last week called The War in Ukraine Two Years On, Today's Challenges and Europe's Future. You can find that recording on Crisis Group's YouTube channel. You can also find more of our work on Ukraine on our website, uh, www.crisisgroup.org. You can follow Crisis Group and Alyssa and me on social media as well. On Twitter, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group and Alyssa is at Alyssa Jobson. I'm on Blue Sky and occasionally Mastodon as at Olya Oliker. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Figursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schau. Our biggest thanks, as always, goes out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace, if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. So we told you with our last episode that we were going to a roughly monthly schedule, and then we surprised you with two episodes in February. Uh, We will be back with another episode in March. um, And until then, uh, goodbye. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye.